all of us. Everyone at the state's academic medical center. All working together to deliver complete care now and for generations to come. All over the state, including hospital and clinic locations from the Delta to the Gulf Coast. All for one reason. You. The University of Mississippi Medical Center. All for your health. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. Recent data shows that more than 80% of pregnancy-related deaths were preventable. One common cause of morbidity and mortality among pregnant women is hypertensive disorders. According to the CDC, hypertensive disorders in pregnancies affect about one in seven deliveries. Today, we have Dr. Rachel Morris on with us. She is an associate professor of medicine at UMMC in obstetrics and gynecology, and she's going to be discussing this topic further with us. And happy Friday, everyone. And I'm so excited to have Rachel on with me here today. And I'm also super excited of how good the weather is today. So it's sunny and I don't see too many clouds in the sky. So good morning. Yes, I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Jasmine, for having me on today. This is a very important topic to talk about. So thank you. Awesome. Well, Rachel, if you don't mind just letting us all know, tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do. Oh, goodness. Okay, so I'm an associate professor, as you said, at UMC. I've been at the University of Mississippi Medical Center for 15 years. Uh, My husband and I are transplants from New Orleans. Uh, Go Tigers, baseball, yay. They won last night starting in the College World Series uh, this weekend. But uh, my husband's a pediatric surgeon. We have three children. We live in Madison. And I am committed uh, to the care of all high-risk pregnancies in Mississippi. My husband is a pediatric surgeon, so we kind of the household is committed to the mothers and the newborns here in Mississippi. Mississippi. Uh, I work all over the Jackson and uh, Jackson metro area. We have clinics at the Jackson Medical Mall uh, in Lakeland. And of course, at the university, we care for the mothers that are high risk or the fetuses that are high risk. So we take care of a lot of our our mothers who are hopefully listening today. Um, We're certainly concerned about lots of the uh, rising rates of maternal mortality and morbidity is certainly something that I'm very passionate about. So glad to be here today. Yes, and I'm so excited Rachel came on with us today because it is definitely a topic that has always been present, of course, and we know in our line of work in medicine of how important this is and how frequent this is and how much further we have to go. But oftentimes, I think sometimes our patients and, you know, people just out there don't realize how important this topic is. And and what has really brought it to light for many people is what has happened with Tori Bowie. And it really has hit home because she is from Mississippi. It is one of ours, you know. And so I it, it's crazy because one of my favorite things is 
these summer Olympics. Like mine too. My house like shuts down. My husband thinks I'm a net. Like I have everything recorded. I've had it planned out. And like track and field is one of my. It's incredible to watch these people perform and just that athleticism and the dedication and the. Yeah, it's it's incredible to watch. So agreed. And so, you know, it's it's also kind of crazy because you almost feel like these people are a part of your family. Oh, so when you hear this on the news, like it's you feel like you've lost the devastating. Loved one. Absolutely. We grieve for these losses for sure. And just for a few people that may not know um, who Tori Bowie is, she was a 32-year-old world champion sprinter and three-time Olympic medalist um, who passed uh, this past May from complications secondary to childbirth. Um, According to many news reports, it's thought that she was eight months pregnant um, and that she possibly died from respiratory distress and eclampsia. Again, we don't know exactly what happened, but this so far is what has been uh, placed in the news and so we just thought it was just a great topic but Bowie is from Sand Hill Mississippi so any of those from Sand Hill that may be listening out there um, and she competed collegially for the University of Southern Miss she was a two-time NCAA Division One long jump champion indoors and outdoors in 2011 and then 2014 world indoor champion as well she switched from long jump uh, ultimately to being a sprinter and she won um, a gold medal with the u.s four by 100 meter relay silver medal in the 100 meters and bronze in the 200 meters in the 2016 rio olympics and then just recent and then also she was bronze and gold and 100 meter in 2015 and 2017 world champion so just an awesome athlete, many, many, many records that she's um, kind of set and been a part of. But just a little bit more about um, what possibly happened. Um, the number of women who died during during or shortly after childbirth in the U.S. is higher than any other developed country in the nation. And risks are even greater for women of color. Black women are at least three times more likely to die from pregnancy-related causes compared to white women, according to the CDC. Even those who are healthy before getting pregnant can experience these complications. And according to the National Institute of Health, pregnancy-related death can happen at any stage. It can be during pregnancy, at delivery, and even up to a year postpartum. And so I think one of the things that Tori really sheds light on is, you know, we're told you're healthy, you eat right, you exercise. You're doing it all right. You're doing it all right. You're getting care. Yeah, you're seeing the doctor, and yet you can still have a major complication. Exactly. So I just want to remind everybody, we really picked today as a topic because I know everyone's seeing this out in the news, but I want you guys to call us with your questions that you have. So Rachel, can you tell us a little bit more about some common complications that we see in pregnancy? So certainly and foremost, the the one that we deal with a lot, uh, basically every day of my life is the hypertensive disorders of pregnancy. So that is a spectrum. So we deal with mothers that have chronic hypertension, pregnancy-induced hypertension. So a mother that does not have high blood pressure prior to pregnancy, but it is strictly because of her being pregnant. And unfortunately, that evolves into something more serious, and that's preeclampsia. Preeclampsia, we used to label it mild or severe. We've we've given it a different terminology, but again, the, the background is mild preeclampsia, severe preeclampsia. And then, of course, that even can evolve into something more serious, which is what happened with Tori, which is what we call eclampsia. So that's when a mother who has preeclampsia ultimately develops a uh, grand mal seizure. 
Unfortunately, again, there are other variations like HELP syndrome. So that stands for hemolysis, elevated liver enzymes, and low platelets. Again, that is where that disorder affects your liver functions and your kidney functions and can cause failure of of those systems, which is really, really scary. So aside from hypertensive disorders, the other things that we deal with on a daily basis you know, is diabetes. Again, diabetes is such a strong impact on maternal well-being. Again, the development of other things. Unfortunately, the leading cause of death uh, from pregnancy at this point is cardiomyopathy. So it is absolutely something we need to be aware of. Um, Cardiomyopathy means a weak heart, again, or a, a heart that's not functioning normally. Again, that can occur just from someone being pregnant. So, you know, for me, Jasmine, the thing that is so important and something I'm doing, you know, in my training and in my teaching at UMC is training other non-obstetric providers, teaching patients about what are pregnancy warning signs, what are risk factors that they need to identify, and, and really just this piece that you've already kind of gotten to that pregnant women are at risk. And the majority of these complications that we're talking about are actually more frequent in the postpartum period. So for example, two thirds of preeclampsia actually happens after the delivery. Oh, wow! <laughs> so a pregnant woman thinks, you know, she's educated and concerned. She knows she's gotten through her delivery. She thinks she's okay. But yet, you know, a 21 year old who's otherwise healthy, who starts developing swelling or headaches and doesn't realize that she's still at risk for these major complications can unfortunately have a bad outcome if she's not, you know, under the understanding that she's still at risk. Again, like you said, unfortunately, some of these deaths that we're seeing is in the first year of life after delivery. So it's also the second piece is training providers in the emergency rooms and in the clinics, again, people that do not, you know, deal with obstetrics on a regular basis that asking a patient, hey, when is the last time you had a baby? Again, that is probably the most critical question you could ask someone. Getting to the problem and understanding that someone has had a baby four weeks ago changes your entire way you approach a medical condition or your level of concern. Again, giving the patient that education piece and letting them have that understanding and awareness is also so important so that they know when to screen, when to identify their their own risk factors, their red flags, their family members can also recognize their red flags so that then they can seek the care that they need uh, to hopefully avoid any further complications or even death. And I think that's wonderful advice, Rachel, because I think once people have the baby, they're like, yes, the hard part is over. We're good. We're good. Baby's Uh good. I'm good. And, and, you know, just reminding our patients and empowering our patients, keep the dialogue going. If something's wrong, something doesn't feel right, make sure you're expressing that to Mm -hmm. your providers. Mm -hmm. I tell my patients all the time, we are here because we want to be here. We want to help you. We want to hear what's wrong. Like, don't be embarrassed. I promise you, I've probably heard it before, you know, absolutely things. I think people get nervous about sharing some of their concerns. And, you know, I tell a patient every day when I see them, listen, there are only a couple of things that concern me. And I go through my list. And then the last thing I say to every woman is if there's anything that concerns you, it concerns me. Mm-hmm. And that's a very basic statement, but it is the truth. If it is a concern to you, there's no such thing as a silly question or something that we should dismiss. Again, when we are dealing with things that are otherwise foreign in this youthful, healthy population, it's really hard to recognize when things are going awry if you're if you're not really 
given the opportunity. So I agree. And and it's kind of crazy because, you know, you hear people saying, you know, having a baby is a miracle. It really it, it really it is. is. It is. I, it is. It I is. remember like when I just got to medical school. And so in medical school, we do this kind of cool class called embryonology. And it's where it really takes you all the way down from like the cell form of like when the sperm meets the egg and then grows and all these kind of things. And I remember after learning all that, like, my gosh, how do we have a, a healthy baby? Like <laughs> everything can go wrong at any stage. It um, is. It is nothing short of a miracle. And I, I witness those miracles every day, and I am constantly in awe of the fact. And I certainly don't take it for granted when we get a mother successfully through a pregnancy, a high-risk mother through a pregnancy without complications. I mean, that that's a win for, for, for me personally. It's a win for my team, again, certainly for the patient and her family. But it is... It is nothing short of a miracle that these happen every day. This is true. From MPB Think Radio, this is Southern Remedy Women's Health, where we discuss issues involving women's health. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And I have with me Dr. Rachel Morris, who is on with us, Associate Professor at UMC in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And so we have just kind of started off this morning talking a little bit about some complications that we can see um, in pregnancy and focusing a little bit on today on hypertensive uh, disorders that we see. So Rachel kind of gave us um, hit the high points of just different types of um, of, of, of hypertensive disorders. But uh, one question that I get from a lot of patients is, do we know what causes this type of complications? So, Jasmine, that's a great question. So there is a lot of research going on nationwide and certainly at the University of Mississippi Medical Center that I am lucky uh, to participate in. Uh, Preeclampsia, hypertensive disorders, we know is multifactorial, but one of the major players in preeclampsia is the placenta, the afterbirth. So in the period where the egg and the sperm uh, meet and create our, our embryo, in that process called nidation, unfortunately, what happens is the placenta, the afterbirth, does not develop enough vascular support, blood flow to help the placenta grow, which ultimately helps the baby grow. And so, unfortunately, with this dysfunctional sort of vascular network between the mother and the growing baby, it leads to inflammation and production of lots of hormones, again, activation of the renin angiotensin. So lots of systemic things within the kidneys and the liver, again, inflammation, what something that we call endothelial dysfunction, you know what that is. But again, so it affects the body, you know, from a complete head to toe, um, Standpoint, And unfortunately, again, this process starts before, you know, the mother even realizes that she's pregnant. Mm -hmm. So we kind of will talk, uh, hopefully, about some of the preventative things that we offer. But again, it's it we we link it mainly to the placenta and as the leading cause again. But there's so many other things. Again, there's lots of trials going on as to how do we fix it? How do we treat it? And again, unfortunately, the only treatment for the mother is delivery at some point, depending on what kind of type you have. Again, there is the severe form and again, a milder form, which can be managed as an outpatient, but ultimately the only treatment is delivery of the, of the newborn and delivery of the placenta. But again, like I said, two thirds of preeclampsia happens postpartum, so that doesn't make any sense, right? right. You deliver the baby, so then why <laughs> the do you keep gone. <laughs> why do you keep getting it? But it's this inflammatory cascade that occurs that again um, continues to function in the mother's system. Unfortunately, preeclampsia, even in and of itself, again is 
is serious, but long term, it is an increasing cause of maternal you know, cardiac disease throughout her lifetime. So that is a cardiovascular risk equivalent, just like other things like smoking and high blood pressure or diabetes. Again, having preeclampsia increases your lifetime risk of having a cardiovascular event. So it is a big deal. Knowing that your mother had preeclampsia increases your risk of having preeclampsia. Yes. So knowing your family history, again, you know, patients ask me all the time, what can I do? Mm -hmm. And it is, you know, we want to empower women. What can I do? Well, again, talking to your provider about your risk factors, knowing your family history, knowing your own history, again, presenting questions and concerns, learning what the risk factors are, what the signs of preeclampsia are, because again, any pregnant woman is at risk for it. Traditionally, we know that pregnant women in their first pregnancy, uh, mothers at the extremes of age, again, our young mothers our older mothers, again, are higher risk. Yet, like you said, our mothers of, of, um, of color, our black mothers are higher risk for developing preeclampsia. But again, mothers with other comorbidities like preexisting chronic hypertension, sickle cell disease, again, diabetes, these are things, lupus, again, things I deal with every day. Those mothers, unfortunately, have an increased risk above the baseline as well. So the USPS task force has uh, let us know, again, after a series of research, and this has come out, I think it was about five or 10 years ago, um, that aspirin is actually prevention for the only preventative option we offer to mothers. Now, at this point, the preventative dosing is 81 milligrams, so a baby aspirin. Okay. So we recommend a baby aspirin for our mothers who are at risk for preeclampsia. So again, that would be the mothers I listed, mothers with hypertension, mothers at the extreme of age who are perhaps slightly overweight. Again, there is a list that exists, but again, any woman with a history of preeclampsia, we also give aspirin to in the subsequent pregnancies. We usually start at around 12 to 14 weeks, but it is something that's taken on a daily basis. And it is the only thing we have at this point um, that's, you know, recommended by all the obstetric related um, resources and national sort of colleges, SMFM and ACOG. So again, we're certainly constantly studying that. I think there are other institutions, even the European guidelines that have looked at, you know, is as two aspirins a day better than one? And certainly gotcha. the debate still exists. So if a, if a educated person starts looking this up, they might see a little debate as to whether two is better than one. Right now we're sticking with one a day. Uh, certainly we don't recommend a full strength aspirin that actually has some uh, concerns for pregnancy. And certainly mm-hmm. my job is all about is assessing risks and benefits. And this is absolutely a risk reducing measure that anyone, you know, can ask about and inquire is, hey, do I need to take an aspirin every day? Mm -hmm. Um, I heard about that. And that is definitely something they can do. Patients also worry that if they take an aspirin every day, that they're unsafe at the time of delivery. Traditionally, we do stop an aspirin about a week or so before delivery. But in the event that a mother undergoes a delivery in the setting of an aspirin, they do just fine. So again, not to fear, but recognize that aspirin is an incredible risk reducing measure that anyone can take. But again, just educating yourself. So preeclampsia, patients often will tell me, Dr. Morris, I don't feel good. 
That may sound like a very vague complaint, but in the third trimester, that is a highly abnormal finding. Mm-hmm. Nausea and vomiting in the third trimester is also a very abnormal finding. Other classic features, you know, are headaches that don't go away with a Tylenol. Um, again, everybody gets a headache. That's not an uncommon thing to happen. But again, a headache that's not going away or persisting despite medication use, that's abnormal. Uh, blurring of your vision, seeing spots or floaters, mm-hmm. you know, when you move around too fast and you see those. And that's actually a feature of preeclampsia, swelling, swelling in your hands, in your face, in your legs, usually symmetric and bilateral, but significant to where you can't put your rings on or again, your eyes look very swollen. And, you know, abdominal pain, again, that nausea and vomiting. But I will tell you a classic complaint that I hear from a patient is I kind of feel like I have the flu. Unfortunately, most of the pregnant women that I take care of will say, I had no idea how bad I felt until after the delivery. And then they kind of had retrospective. I I was really, really sick and I Mm -hmm. didn't even realize it. So it's so important for family members to be paying attention to their matriarchs, to their mothers and saying, are you okay? You know, how are you doing? You don't look like you feel well today because it is certainly something sometimes they don't even realize how sick they are. And you're right about that, because I think so many of us try to self-diagnose. Absolutely. Um, and, you know, you, you hear pregnancy's hard. You're going to be tired. Your belly's big. You're going to swell. So, like, you already think, like, oh, this is what pregnancy is. It's supposed to be like. <laughs> and right. And so a lot of people don't seek that care because you've just made up in your mind that this is, this normal. is how I'm supposed mm-hmm. to feel. Like, I'm supposed to feel different. Absolutely. And I do think that there are, you know, and that that's what your doctor's for. You don't mm-hmm. have to do that. And recognizing that there are things that sometimes masquerade and it really can be a very fine line between what is normal and what is abnormal. But that's really what your doctor is for, is to provide that reassurance that everything is okay. or actually, no, I'm so glad you came in. This really, you know, this isn't normal. And even as a physician, sometimes that is hard to know, you know, when it when do you call? When do you reach out? And. You know, of course, when you're talking about the postpartum period, too, you know, you're tired, you're dealing with a newborn, you're trying to breastfeed or bottle feed, you have other children, perhaps, mm-hmm. you're, you're fatigued. It's just those challenges. Also, you know, mama gets put, you know, put to the back burner. You know, my concerns aren't significant. This is fine. I'm just, you know, I, I'm just not coping well. I, I mean, that has so many layers and compounds, you know, a mother seeking access to care because she's got so much to do. No, you're exactly right. And I, and I hope that a lot of people that are listening um, can ultimately take away, as I say, each Friday, talk to your doctor. Like, don't, you know, and uh, I, I was just teasing my best friend about this as we were drive. I was driving into the show and, and I call it Dr. Google. And I was like, Google will terrify you. Like, you know, you will read or what you're, what's there. You either, it, I feel like it's the two extremes. You either feel like you're dying or they've brushed it off to nothing. And so I tell everyone, this is what we went to school for. Like, you don't have to sit home trying to decipher if what Google says is your ailment. Like, call your doctor. You're cracking me up because I usually ask patients when they come in and they're coming for X or Y, I say, what did Dr. Google tell you? And so I usually have to do a little bit of, you know, debriefing and, okay, well, you have found a completely incorrect answer or, yeah, actually, you're right on target. target, You found it. Yes, I agree. We're going to evaluate your concerns. So I think access to, you know, the media and 
again, Dr. Google and all these search engines are helpful, but medical websites certainly provide a little bit more of that targeted, streamlined, you know, patient information. Mm -hmm. So I certainly prefer that, but over, you know, non-medical websites, but again, whatever it is, whatever helps you understand, hey, this is not normal, you know, I need to seek out care at this point. Everyone needs to have a heightened sense of awareness. I agree. So I actually do have a question about the aspirin is because it actually came up amongst one of our family friends that ended up taking aspirin during their pregnancy. So, you know, we we tell people you're trying to get pregnant. Uh You know, you're high risk. Many people will start their prenatal vitamins while they're trying and planning. And you guys typically start the aspirin around 12 to 14 weeks, which sometimes people don't know at that point that they're pregnant or have checked. Would you recommend someone that's trying to get pregnant? that knows they have diabetes and high blood pressure to go ahead and start that baby aspirin? Or is that, are we doing too much? Because, you know. (laughs) No, so it's a great question. So if a patient is not already on an aspirin, we started at that point. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there is a slight increased risk of bleeding in the first trimester that every pregnant woman is at risk for. But aspirin does not cause birth defects. So it's not called a teratogen. So if a pregnant woman knows she's at risk, uh, certainly speaking, uh, starting the aspirin before she even got pregnant would not be harmful. So, yes, just knowing that risk exists, knowing you need to take the medicine again, it wouldn't hurt anything. No, awesome. That that is that is ultimately like really good to know because I'll be honest, I feel like medicine changes so much Constantly. from like when I trained and did my OB rotation. I did not realize that was something that we were doing. And it's then my newer. friends like, I'm taking aspirin. I'm like, why are you taking aspirin? Yeah, and you have to be careful because again, I've had patients come in and they're taking the full strength aspirin. It's like, wait, no, that's yeah. actually too much of a dose. So we want to make sure you're taking the baby 81 milligram aspirin. But certainly, it is. It's constantly changing, and again, that's why. Even mentioned again, we in my lifetime we may decide that it's another medicine or perhaps it's two aspirins. We're mm-hmm. not there yet, so certainly this is why it's an ongoing conversation with your physician as to what you should be on and what are my risk factors or what did I have in the past. Uh, certainly, and I'll tell you, my favorite, some of my favorite clinic visits are actually getting to sit down with a pregnant woman or a woman before she ever encounters pregnancy. We call it our preconception visits. People don't even know that these things exist. But if you do know you have risk factors or you're concerned about your family history or something that's gone on in the past, you know, you can always call an OB provider and they can set you up with a visit before you ever encounter a pregnancy to identify what things can we do to make my pregnancy pregnancy healthier. Again, before it even starts. Mm-hmm. I mean, then you have that control piece, which is so important. And it empowers a woman to do things that will lead to a better outcome. And that's really what we're here for, is to make every pregnancy as successful as possible. Right. I'm Dr. Jasmine Kinsey, Assistant Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at UMMC. And this morning I have on with me Dr. Rachel Morris, who is an Associate Professor of Medicine at UMMC in Obstetrics and Gynecology. And we have so far been talking about um, just common complications that you have in pregnancy and things that we can look out for um, as uh, providers, as family members, as the patient, as to identifying some of these things, what we can do before pregnancy, during pregnancy, after pregnancy. So we all in all have just learned a lot this morning um, from Dr. Morris. So I'm happy that she's on with us today. And we are going to go ahead and move on to our first caller. We have Carrie from Flowood. Good morning, Carrie. Good morning. How are you? Hey, my name is uh, Satya, actually. Oh, I'm sorry. (laughs) 
No, no problem. I just wanted to say thank you very much for your time. Uh, it's a very lovely and informative show. Um, I'm an incoming resident, actually. I'll be starting my family medicine residency here at UMMC next week. And uh, was wondering if you had any advice for incoming residents on how to counsel these patients on maybe anything that you've noticed in your practice, something that works well when you're communicating to patients, because I know things like these can be very difficult conversations, um, especially when you have so many other factors in their lives going on. They're not just concerned about their health. They also have bills to pay. They've got mouth to feed. Maybe they're working multiple jobs. So I just wanted to get your insight on that, maybe. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for your call and congratulations. So, you know, getting selected for residency and starting that journey on July 1 is a huge feat to begin with. So um, as everyone says, take a deep breath and, you know, get ready for the ride. (laughs) Very, very true. Congratulations. Yes. What a what an accomplishment. And we look forward to working with you and and helping you take care of patients. So, I, you know, you brought up a great question from a provider perspective, and I think it's really important for even the patients to hear what I would recommend to uh, to fellow colleagues. So I think, you know, as providers, we need to ask really good questions to better understand our patient and the things that may be affecting their lives. OK, and I think, you know, as a provider, you know, we certainly ought to have to have to educate them on understanding some risk factors, again, before pregnancy, again, what they would be looking for during a pregnancy, again, to help them manage some of these chronic medical conditions, again, whether it's chronic hypertension or diabetes or depression. I mean, you're going to be that person that's going to be able to help them. You know, you can, again, work with a obstetrician or even myself, maternal field medicine specialist, to identify the medications they're taking to understand which ones of those are pregnancy or reproductive uh, friendly. So identify the medications that perhaps we need to change prior to pregnancy, again, to facilitate making those pregnancy changes and those pregnancy-friendly medications. Um, even, you know, again, ideally you you have a patient on a blood pressure medicine or a seizure medicine or a lupus medicine that is safe, you know, the six months before pregnancy so they can adapt and make sure their condition doesn't change. Again, stability prior to pregnancy is so important. The other thing is that right. please, please, please encourage patients not to stop their medicines when they find out they're pregnant. That is something that everyone does, regardless yeah. of if it's an antidepressant Again, a blood pressure medicine, a lupus medicine, uh, you, you know, what have you. And those are things that the majority of the time, I would say 99% of the time, not only do I maintain the same medicine, but I may adjust the dose to make sure that they are receiving adequate dosing as their body starts to change in pregnancy. So it is very rare that I would say no to a specific medicine in pregnancy because a lot of things are actually quite safe and have really good um, safety profiles that have been studied and are ongoing studies. Again, aside from that, you know, really 
encourage you to look at your own, you know, bias. Again, we all have to be aware of the biases that we bring to the healthcare uh, fields and again, respond to patients and their concerns and, you know, really just kind of help the team and provide, you know, respectful quality healthcare again. And that's something we're all here to do, but it is, it's just important to kind of work together as a team and certainly, you know, as a resident and as a fellow and as a, you know, a faculty physician, we all have friends and people that we can call on. So again, just like the patients aren't alone, we as providers can always reach out to make sure that patients receive the best care that they need. Right. No, thank you. Thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it and look forward to hopefully seeing you around on campus or possibly working with y'all. Absolutely. <laughs> awesome. Take care. Happy Friday. Thank you. Take care. Awesome. Well, as I mentioned before, we've learned so much so far about just how this presents and what symptoms patients can have. And we started kind of touching on it a little bit. How can I reduce my risk of these types of complications? So we mentioned aspirin and knowing your past medical history and trying to be as prepared as we can going into those things. Anything else that we could be doing? So. Again, a mother that's high risk really needs to be followed closer in pregnancy. So again, mothers, depending on your medical risk factors, will be followed or co-managed by a maternal fetal medicine specialist. Again, frequently these mothers are seen every two weeks, sometimes every four, again, depending on the complexities. Again, we, we really want to identify targets. So, you know, a blood pressure, for example, um, we want to make sure that the patient's blood pressures are under 140s over 90s. So it's, again, understanding the, that the patient can check it at home and that she can speak to her doctor about monitoring, again, making sure patients have access to the adequate supplies for diabetes care and that they're getting the nutrition that they need and to make sure that they have the supplies that they need, again, to just kind of get through these barriers. Again, if you treat and control your medical problems, you're going to reduce your risks of having any kind of complication. Again, in addition to that, again, we have to monitor the pregnancy itself. So the the fetus and the developing baby needs further care, perhaps um, more ultrasounds, again, to assess the risk of growth restriction or Mm -hmm. other complications or perhaps birth defects. Again, so that it's it is absolutely 100 percent about a healthy mom. And we don't have a healthy baby if we don't have a healthy mom. But there's you know, those both of those things go together. Yes, definitely. And so, you know, and again, as we say, we try to be as prepared as we can. But, you know, of course, things things happen. But yes, yeah, so just definitely trying to be prepared for pregnancy, you know, even doing all the right things, we know that complications can still occur. I wish we had a screening test that we could do, you know, in the first part of pregnancy to say, Unfortunately, you are high risk for preeclampsia. Those things are in the works. Those Mm -hmm. things are being studied, but we don't have market tests right now that can say you have preeclampsia or, you know, you're certainly going to develop it at 28 weeks or, you know, 30 weeks or something for patients. But it's really just about understanding your risks and controlling what you can do. Mm -hmm. Again, exercise is safe in pregnancy, but it's Again, just understanding those things and talking to your provider, like you've mentioned, and making sure you're getting the appropriate care that you need. And that's all great advice. So we, I think we've got Mark now. So we've got our next caller, Mark, um, Mobile, Alabama. That's actually my old home, Mark. I went to medical school at the University of South Alabama in, in Mobile. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing okay. I have a follow-up for... Uh, the fellow that was the resident incoming that uh, was asking about what to what to ask or what to know. Um, 
I'm not a medical provider. I'll put that out up front. However, I am a former teacher and former recruiter for corporations. So uh, one of the things I might suggest when communicating with patients is to ask open-ended questions, not how are you feeling, which they can say, okay, but tell me how you've been feeling the last week or something like, what are the top three concerns that bring you today? Okay, because if you ask them, what's your big concern, they'll go, oh, I've got an ache in my such and such. And uh, saying, what are your top three concerns can actually lead to things other than a medical condition. So uh, that, that just is my perspective, is that thinking consciously about an open-ended question really will bring out information that the patient wouldn't share otherwise. Thank you, Mark. And that that really is truly excellent advice, especially some of your patients. I tell, you know, our residents that are coming in and our students all the time. So many people are so nervous and, you know, trying, you know, trying to get them to open up when you have those closed questions. Yes. No. Yeah. You know, patients really sometimes even also don't feel heard. And so those open ended questions really allow you to kind of dig deeper as to what their concerns are. And oftentimes they feel more comfortable, I feel. Absolutely. Right. And that's why saying, what are your top two things or top three things that breaks them out of the mold of a single answer? And uh, in, in my past, I found that that really gets to a lot more information. And as you say, it helps their level of comfort. So that's really I just want to kind of share that perspective. Perfect. Well, thank you for your comments, Mark. You have a great Friday. You too. Bye bye. Awesome. Well, Rachel, you definitely have taught us so much, and you kind of touched on it a little bit about more ultrasounds and workup. Is there a blood test that says, aha, this is what you have? Is there a, you know, what what do I expect when I go to my OB to figure out what's going on? So if a patient is feeling poorly or thinks they may have preeclampsia, they need to be seen either in their physician's office or in a obstetric emergency room or on labor and delivery. So it's absolutely not something that you just sit at home and wait for the phone call. If you're concerned, this is a life-threatening emergency, you need to be seen that day. So don't put it off until it gets worse. When you get to the hospital, a couple of things that are, you know, very standardly done across the country. So we start checking your blood pressure serially. So every 15 minutes or so to see what it's running. Again, that, that is our first baseline for what is really the severity of what's happening. Preeclampsia, again, they've changed the definitions and diagnosis, diagnostic criteria. So hypertension alone and symptoms are enough to make the diagnosis. So again, if a patient is having really severe hypertension, so we def- define severe hypertension as a 160 over 110. Again, mild range hypertension is 140 over 90. So any of those numbers, again, higher than 140 over 90 is considered grossly abnormal for a pregnant woman. So yes, number one, we check the blood pressure and we check it over a period of time. So several hours. Then we send off a bunch of labs, again, to assess your kidney function, your liver function. We look to see if you're spilling protein in your urine. Again, preeclampsia, by definition, is hypertension in a woman after 20 weeks who is also now spilling protein in her urine. And we do different types of protein assessments. 
But again, the hypertension piece is so very important and so critical to making that diagnosis. Again, the good news is if you're less than 20 weeks, traditionally speaking, you're very low risk for having preeclampsia. Traditionally, this is a second or third trimester diagnosis. So if you have something like hypertension, again, a 140 over 90, less than 20 weeks, your doctor may actually talk to you about, hey, this may actually represent chronic hypertension. Mm -hmm. Again, we usually would consider that a pre-existing condition. Some pregnant women, again, they don't seek out care in between pregnancies because they're taking care of everyone else. And so we catch a lot of things in the first trimester that, again, unfortunately, we have to treat, again, and identify those risks. So you may find out that you have hypertension at your first visit, you know, at the OB doctor and, you know, find that, as unfortunately, as a, um, as a, alarming kind of finding. So beyond the labs and the blood pressures, again, in the protein, we're asking you about your symptoms. Again, a headache may not seem serious to anyone, but it is a life-threatening emergency. Again, blurry vision, upper abdominal pain. Unfortunately, women with preeclampsia can develop fluid in their lungs, what we also call pulmonary edema. Mm -hmm. So that's a very, very severe finding. Of course, again, we talked about the, you know, the more severe features, certainly a, a seizure, again, or HELP syndrome. Unfortunately, preeclampsia and eclampsia are tied to intracranial hemorrhages or strokes. So a pregnant woman can have these complications as well that is linked. And that is probably what happened to Tori is she had an eclamptic seizure at home and unfortunately had a respiratory um had respiratory difficulty, certainly, and may, may or may not have had some kind of intracranial hemorrhage and unfortunately passed away. So, I mean, these are things that are preventable, though. I mean, this is absolutely devastating that mm -hmm. some kind of complication like this occurred for her. So after, again, a pregnant woman is getting evaluated, depending on the severity or complexity of what's going on with her, she may or may not need to be hospitalized. There certainly is a fetal assessment that's occurring simultaneous. We're looking at the baby on the monitor, perhaps, again, looking on ultrasound to see how the growth of the baby is or how the fluid looks on the monitor. Um, so there's lots of things that go into it. So it is a complex evaluation, and hopefully someone's considered stable and healthy and can go home with close follow-up uh, in the clinic. But a, a lot of the times it requires a hospitalization because really this can evolve. So again, just because you went to the doctor one day and they said everything checked out doesn't mean in two days that you could not have a life-threatening emergency. So mm -hmm. it's really, you might be okay, but continue to monitor, continue to talk to your doctor about what happened over the weekend perhaps. And then certainly that follow-up piece is super important. So it, it can be very overwhelming for oh, someone yeah. who's, and unfortunately, again, I mentioned that for the patient in her first pregnancy is unfortunately one of the higher risk ones. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you have the lady who has nothing, you know, really limited awareness as to what to look out for. She doesn't have a barometer for what's normal or what's not normal. And then you throw this kind of complication in the mix and it really is quite anxiety producing for everyone. Definitely. Definitely. I personally, at least, have been learning a lot about uh, hypertensive disorders in pregnancy. And it's nice to just for even me as a provider to get a nice refresher and remind me of things that I need to be doing to improve my practice. And I'm so thankful, Rachel, for some of the advice you've given me, because when I go through my past medical history, you know, I've kind of got this like hypertension, diabetes, and I go through and I do ask, like, how many kids do you have? Are you married? And ask about all these social things. But I honestly don't always dig 
into what pregnancy outcome was how like. How was your pregnancy? Exactly. And it's a real big piece. And so I thank you for that because now I will make sure as I'm leaving that well, I include that. Again, in my you don't own. think it's going to be something that you have to worry about for the rest of your lifetime, yeah. but it is. And so again, teaching someone as a medical professional, again, even if you're not trained in obstetrics, and that's something that I am doing, you know, at present, hey, listen, ask her, the 70 year old lady, when is the last time you had a baby? She'll probably laugh at you. But you've got you've gotten, you know, kind of broken that silence. And she can tell you again, the 21 year old may not be thinking that four weeks ago that that was important. But yes, it does. And it opens up this differential that you probably weren't thinking about. But again, for long term lifetime, again, when you hear, oh, well, I developed a blood clot in pregnancy. You did. Okay, well, now you have this or that. So now it really, the obstetric history, uh, obstetric patients are so different and the problems they have to deal with are so different. And as providers, we really have to do a better job at making sure we're, we're kind of there and making sure patients are taken care of. Yes. Yeah, so we have time for one more quick call. I have got Alyssa here in Ocean Springs. Good morning. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. So I have a daughter who has been recently um, genotyped with an MTHFR mutation. And the um, this is from Tulane University. They told us that there is this. It was brought about for something nothing to do with babies. She's a person. But they told us there is a link between that and miscarriage. And I just wondered what your thoughts were on that. Hey, good morning, Alyssa. I'm so glad you called. Thank you for this question. So, you know, there is a little controversy about some of these gene mutations. So MTHFR is one of those, thankfully, actually, that's falling off the list of obstetric concern. So, you know, when we talk about risk factors for miscarriage, I will tell you, it is a lot of controversy. And there are a lot of doctors across the country that really believe for a variety of reasons. And this is definitely something that I think is a a little bit of a pendulum. It's swinging one way and swinging in another. But traditionally in my practice, I don't test for MTHFR because, again, it doesn't have a clinical impact uh, on preeclampsia, on miscarriage, um, on the risk of really developing, for example, a blood clot in your legs or your lungs. Now, I will tell you, again, I've well read in this area, there are a few studies that have linked MTHFR to an increased risk of early first trimester miscarriage. And so there is where uh, we had mentioned earlier with Jasmine, some patients would like to take uh, an aspirin perhaps early on in pregnancy or talk to their provider about any other medications that they could take to decrease their risks of miscarriage in the first trimester. So certainly that would be a very individualized question. But I will tell you, as opposed to some of the other, there are other gene mutations that we talk about that significantly increase risk of loss, stillbirth, or blood clots in your legs or lungs, what we call venous thromboembolism. This is pretty low on the risk factor list. So that's a good thing. And good luck to her, certainly, in, in her future fertility. And thank you so much for that call, Alyssa. But we've run out of time today. I've truly enjoyed having Rachel on, and we've learned so much. This is Southern Remedy Women's Health. It's a production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting Think Radio, and it's funded in part by a grant from University of Mississippi Medical Center and generous support from listeners like you. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. 
To hear previous shows, visit mpbonline.org or download the MPB Public Radio app to listen on your iPhone or Android phone on demand.